You're listening to ReachMD. Welcome to Genetically Speaking, produced in cooperation with the American Society of Human Genetics, advancing human genetics in science, health, and society. Now here's your host, Dr. Robert Green, geneticist at Brigham and Women's Hospital, director of the Genomes to People Research Program, and associate professor of medicine, Harvard Medical School. Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Green, your host, and with me today is Dr. Richard Gibbs, the director and Wofford Kane professor at Baylor College of Medicine's Human Genome Sequencing Center. And uh, today we're going to be discussing the future of clinical sequencing. Dr. Gibbs, welcome to our show. Thank you. So there's so many things that you've been a leader in. Um, let's just start off with exome sequencing. Can you tell us a little bit about your history with these methods and, and some of the contributions your group has made to it and how they fit into the development of this in the world? We worked with Nimblegen, one of the oligonucleotide manufacturing vendors in the early days, and with them saw the potential to provide uh, enrichment for specific genomic regions. And we were delighted when together we saw just how uh, efficient these methods could be. So. We and others in the community went through a series of developments where the procedures were scaled up to do whole exomes and put into liquid form and made so they could be practical. Uh, it was really pretty obvious to many of us what the implications of this method were because we'd all been working away with polymerase chain reaction for years and just dreaming of the idea of doing polymerase chain reaction on all of the exons in the human genome at one time. And uh, that, of course, was not uh, not achievable. So here we had a shortcut method for it. So it was a it was a really a lightning moment. And this has really developed. I mean, uh, can you give us a sense of the scale of how it's changed from the early days to what the kinds of exomes we're getting now? Is there a way to sort of make that clear to people? Well, I think um, there's two answers to that. One is a technical one, which is the methods in the early days got about 90% of the things you might want to look at, and now we're pushing close to 100%. But I think more dramatically, when you look around and when you read uh, the journals in human genetics now, you see the amazing proliferation of discovery that is catalyzed by whole exome capture methods. So I think the, the um, penetrance of the method into our community is seen through those two views. And you know, this is a human genetics meeting that's supposed to run the gamut from, from all sorts of, uh, of biochemical genetics, but you can't help thinking it's a medical meeting as well, uh, because there's so much emphasis on patients here. How, how do you see whole exome sequencing playing out in the clinic sort of now and uh, let's say a couple years from now? Yeah, that's really one of the delights of this meeting is it's been about the human disease biology. And for many years, we saw uh, a disconnect between that and our developments in genomics. But anybody who came to this meeting for the first time this year couldn't possibly imagine that was ever true because it's all about genomics and all about the clinic. And I think that's what we're seeing through uh, many efforts, you know, yours and ours and, and others who are actively pushing these techniques into the lives of real families who have real medical problems. Now, I've heard the uh, opinion expressed that Boy, if we, if we could just do whole genome sequencing, just afford to do that, that would be the better course as we go forward. Uh, can you give us uh, another side to that story? Yes, I think that if you can uh, ask anybody, would you like more rather than less of anything, they'll usually say more. But there are many nuances to this discussion that are probably worth reflecting on before making any operational decisions in a clinical laboratory. 
it is simply true that we know very little about the uh, genome outside of the exons and that if we, uh, if we properly assay those exons, we can solve most, most of the things that are solvable in the uh, clinical arena. Uh, that's not to say that we shouldn't be doing whole genomes and that we shouldn't be exploring in a research mode very aggressively what is, what is out there in the genome outside of the exons. But when you look at all the nuances, including cost and efficiency and what we can interpret, the argument is much more nuanced. Now, some people might say the uh pharmacogenomic variants are, say, intronic. Uh, we're not going to get them in a classic whole exome sequence, but I've learned today that there may be other ways to use the exome sequencing technology to do that. Can you elaborate on that? Um, that's right. You can look at um, some of these, some of these variants involve copy number changes. Um, some of them involve parts of the genome that aren't necessarily part of copy number changes, but are simply difficult to test and then uh, some of them are quite straightforward. So the answers to questions about which method should you use and how should you apply it and which context are actually dependent on which one of those you're talking about and what the intended endpoint is. But you know, one never wants to get technically nuanced in a straightforward discussion. It's kind of tedious, but the simple fact is that it really does depend on many of those issues exactly which direction you want to go in. Now, have you been whole genome sequenced or whole exome sequenced yourself? Both. Both. Well, and uh, it, I guess somewhat interestingly, my whole exome sequence was more informative to me than my whole genome sequence, mm. but largely this was because of the evolution of the sequencing methods. Mm -hmm. So I haven't had the luxury of the latest and greatest whole genome sequence. Have you? I've just uh, been sequenced uh, for the second time, uh, so we'll see what that, that they've been both whole genome sequencing and one exome from quite a few years ago. So we'll see. It's fun to try to take that in my own small way and compare those and, and see where they're concordant and where they're discordant. Well, this, I think, is an interesting illustration of the argument because I imagine you'll end up saying that you found more in your whole genome than you did in your exome that was of interest, but in fact, it was an older exome. Mm. In my case, it's a more recent exome and an older genome and for the and inverse the, reason, I would have probably the opposite. So maybe what's the speech. latest rather than uh, the technology itself that's telling us telling us more? What I think so. What about, uh, this is a little technical, but I, I think a lot of our um, listeners don't understand that there are certain types of variations, places where there's uh, larger duplications and deletions, that may not be well picked up on sequencing in general. And... Um, this is this is sort of one of the fears that we that people perceive sequencing as as complete as encyclopedic uh, as universal and it went in often often it isn't what's what's the future of zeroing in on these copy number so-called copy number variants and larger indels uh, that have traditionally been a little harder to sequence well your point is absolutely correct of course and some parts of the genome that are hard to test by any method turn out to be very often involved in disease processes, so they become the things you really do want to measure. I think technically, though, there are several uh, bright spots on the horizon, and we're seeing uh, a proliferation of methods that can pre-treat DNA to make it more amenable to sequence through those difficult regions and to assemble through those difficult regions. We're seeing better software to take the existing data to make more sense of those uh, regions. We're also seeing an understanding now that uh, 
more sophistication in building reference sequences in order to properly search them, even with existing tools, can be hugely beneficial in mm. deciphering some of these regions. So to me, the big picture message is that the enterprise is steadily steaming on towards better and better data quality, which is what you'd hope to see in pretty much any endeavor. Terrific. If you're just joining us, you're listening to ReachMD. I'm Robert Green, and I'm speaking with Richard Gibbs from Baylor College of Medicine. We're talking about clinical sequencing and the future of clinical sequencing in medicine and society. So, Richard, if uh, you had to predict something that's going to surprise us or really be a game changer in um, genomic medicine in the next couple of years, what might it be? This may not be quite the kind of answer you're looking for, but socially I would say the big surprise is that there won't be any more headlines that say a genome is sequenced. Mm -hmm. And by that I mean that this technology will permeate medical care and, and social, all kinds of arenas of our lives in such a way that it simply is not a surprise anymore to have the data available in some form. It'll be because of things like carrier testing or healthy screening, uh, pre-malignancy testing, or even, uh, even disease testing, where the data from a family and family members go into the database, and it's simply there for the physician and others who are entitled to access the data to work with. It, it'll be like x-rays. Nobody has a surprise that they can get an x-ray anymore, mm -hmm. and that's quite a big social shift. You know, uh, given, I, I recently was sensitized to the uh, uh, notion that depending on your ancestral background, the databases that we use to characterize variants may be much richer in uh, traditional white populations and less rich in minority populations in this country. This seems to have an option for real disparities as the, the known get more benefit from existing databases and existing technologies than the minority populations. Do you think this is an issue as well, and what do you think we have to be doing to address it? I really am very pleased that you raised that question, Robert, and I know you think about this area a lot. My perspective is that it's not, we're not being Pollyannish if we say that, yes, it's a real problem, but we're addressing it very solidly. Uh, just today, uh, members of my group were on one of the um, H3Africa um, programmatic calls in discussion about accessing samples from populations that have not been represented. Uh, this is populations within Africa, so we're, we're sort of a couple of steps along the way here to make sure we get uh, as many populations as we, as we can so that those samples may be assayed and entered into the databases that will basically solve the problem that you're correctly pointing to. So I think there are many initiatives like this. It is an example of health disparity, but it's a... Um, one that's being rapidly addressed. And uh, the laboratory at uh, Baylor just published a, a, an enormous paper with uh, several thousand people, I think over 2,000 people, continues to have a discovery and diagnosis rate of around, I guess a diagnosis rate of around 25, 24, 25%. Were there some surprises in that? I was, I was particularly struck by, for example, the, uh, some of the imprinting uh, information. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about uh, what's underneath the surface of 25% uh, um, diagnosis rate? How else are we using this in the, in the treatment or development or, or the diagnosis of, of people with uh, disease? 
So, uh, yeah, there, there were surprises in the study. We see examples of two genetic diseases in the same child, and only retrospectively looking at the molecular data can you then realise that the complicated phenotype is the result of the impact of these two, often in other individuals, separate genetic disorders. And then there was the incidences of uh, uniparental disomy, the chromosome non-disjunctions leading to extensive homozygosity, and there was incidences of mosaicism. So we see where new mutations occur, but they obviously occur late enough in development that they're not ubiquitously present in the affected individual. So the big message here, I think, that we're seeing is the real biology that you can detect in the course of these clinical studies. Now, as, as you are more expert than anyone, you know that you can't simply do research on your clinical samples. But as we begin to uh, approach families and re uh, get research consents from sufficient numbers of individuals who are entering through the clinical portals, we begin to see this beautiful interplay between the research agenda and the clinical service agenda. And that, to me, is, is perhaps the answer to your earlier question, mm -hmm. too, that we're seeing a social societal change almost. That, um, that is enriching our research practice even while we're simply practicing medicine. It really is the boundary between clinical and research is really becoming more porous. Uh, it has its dangers, but I think it's also uh, an inevitable and exciting development of the fast-moving pace of discovery. So my expertise is in technology, and now I feel like we're properly passing the baton to <laughs> yourself and your colleagues whose expertise is in how we can deal with these societal issues. Let me ask you just a couple more questions. Uh, this one about gene expression. Um, even when we think we've got some aspects of the sequence figured out, um, some of our listeners may not realize that genes can be turned on and turned off, just like the dials on the control panel in front of me right now. And uh, could you say a word to sort of let them know what's the future look like in terms of applying these technologies to gene expression and how will that change things? Well, I think for direct measurement of gene expression we're seeing cheaper, faster, more accurate. So that's all good. But I think that the tying in of the clinical phenotypes with the genotypes, with really comprehensive understanding of, of locus structure and sites that are remote to individual genes that can influence the expression of those genes, with the expression patterns, with the allelic specific expression patterns, with the phenotypes and with the intermediate biochemistry, that's when we're really going to ratchet ourselves ahead in discovery and understanding. So last question, do you think the dream of personalized predictive medicine is within reach in our, uh, in our lifetimes? Oh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm still more than just got the faith. I'm very bullish on personalized medicine through genomics and I know you are too. I am too and I want to pass on our thanks to you, Dr. Gibbs. We've been discussing the future of clinical sequencing. I'm your host, Dr. Robert Green, and join us next time. Be sure and also visit our website at reachmd.com, featuring podcasts of this and other series. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Genetically Speaking on ReachMD. If you missed any part of this discussion, you can download this segment and others in the series at reachmd.com slash genetics. Thank you for listening.